reading from Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the gogs of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone throughout the whole island as far as, far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elmas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Acts 13 is one of those more decisive turns in the book of Acts. Not only decisive for the life of the church, but decisive in a way that it reveals to us the experience of every believer. First of all, We've been running through the book of Acts, and we've seen that uh, as the story of the church unfolds, it unfolds in a surprising way. In other words, the, the Jews who come to believe in Jesus at Pentecost didn't immediately say, let's go out immediately uh, to the rest of the world and share the story of Jesus. It's not how they responded at all. They were very content to stay in Jerusalem presuming that the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures would mean that all the peoples from the surrounding world would flow into Jerusalem. They become surprised, right? So they're forced out of Jerusalem by what? By persecution. Once they go and start witnessing to the surrounding countryside, then they're also surprised not only by finding themselves in these places, but by the conversion of Gentiles. And so at this point, you see the church fasting and praying as chapter 13 opens up, and they seem to sincerely be saying, We've been very surprised up to this point. The story is unfolding in a way that we didn't expect. And so what does it mean for us to participate? Well, we're going to wait and seek the Lord in the midst of this. He's got to guide us because this has been a very surprising turn in the history of redemption thus far. And what unfolds as they do seek the will of the Lord is the activity of the Spirit. Luke is uh, by far the most notable of the gospel writers and emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit. But here in 13, we see the Spirit come to the fore in three decisive ways 
in this story for Barnabas and Paul, but it's also uh, paradigmatic for the Christian experience. In verse 2, you see that the Spirit calls. In verse 4, you see that the Spirit sends. And in verse 9, you see that the Spirit equips. And that's the truth. That is the reality for every believer. The Spirit calls you, the Spirit sends you, and the Spirit equips you. Right? There is no being a Christian without being sent because as we, even we're seeing in this chapter 13, and as we've seen in this unfolding story of the book of Acts as I've just described, to, uh, to be called to Jesus, to be called by the Spirit, is to participate in this mission, this outward-looking nature. And this is the first time in the book of Acts where the church has actually decided, oh, we better be intentional about looking outward. And that's why this is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. He'll make three substantial journeys within the book of Acts. This is the first of those three as he starts out because the Spirit has that intention for him. And so we want to look at each of these aspects of the Spirit and also reflect upon what they mean for us. Right? We're looking at a particular and marvelous case in the story of Barnabas and, and Saul, but we're also saying that this is the reality for every person in the church to be called, to be sent, and to be equipped. So what does it mean that they are called by the Spirit? Well, we get a couple of interesting notes as we begin chapter 13 of Acts. Luke takes time to describe to us a little bit the church, that they're prophets and teachers, they're investing in building up the church and educating those who are gathered, and he names five of them for us. Two, of course, are Barnabas and Saul, but the other three uh, include two that are particularly notable. The first is Simeon, who is also called Niger. Well, Niger is just a Latinism meaning black, and why this is outstanding is because uh, uh, Simeon was almost certainly African, perhaps Ethiopian, and we see the church growing in breadth and depth. Its influence and its ability to, to communicate uh, across the Mediterranean world is becoming more significant. It's also notable, uh, the individual mentioned who is Menean. And it's notable because Menean, it says, was, um, this is essentially a lifelong friend of, of Herod. Now again, the Herods are confusing. Now we're talking about Herod Antipas. He's in the middle. Herod the Great is ruling when Jesus is born and declares that all babies under two years old should be killed. Then you've got, last week we looked at Herod Agrippa, who oversees the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter. In between those, right, there you've got a grandfather and grandson. In the middle, you've got the son, who is Herod Antipas, who oversees Jesus crucifixion, and he oversees the beheading of John the Baptist. Menean grew up with him. In fact, the language, if we rendered it literally, they shared the same wet nurse, and they grew up in the same halls of power within Jerusalem. And yet now we see them, and Herod Antipas has gone away where he uh, intentionally opposed the story of Jesus and oversaw his death and the beheading of John. And Menean, this childhood friend, has gone in a direction where we find him as a leader, a teacher, a prophet in the church in Antioch, building it up. We see the extension of God's grace, his provision for that which is necessary. Many theologians think that Menean was probably an important source material for Luke. Remember, he's a historian. He's writing about things that he didn't have access to. He's lived long after. But what better source to learn about Herod Antipas and what he did than from his lifelong friend Menean? And so we see the church being rounded out in this fashion. 
We also see that these teachers and prophets are committed to seeking the Lord. In verse 2, how do we find the posture of the church? We find them worshiping the name of the Lord in fasting, committing themselves in acts of devotion to hear from God. Now, uh, not that long ago, someone uh, came into the church for a little while and suggested that fasting was no longer necessary. It was an ancient practice. It was something that we didn't have to engage in. And I found this rather odd, but I've heard similar arguments in the past. And sometimes it goes like this. There's a section in Luke 5 in which the religious leaders are giving uh, Jesus a hard time about not fasting. It's in John 5, 33 through 36. It goes like this. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Well, so some would argue that yes, the disciples were uh, eating and drinking when Jesus was present. Jesus then is crucified, and at that time, the bridegroom is taken away, and then they could fast. But some would argue that now the Spirit has unified us to Christ. Right? The bridegroom is present again, and therefore we do not need to fast. And there's all kinds of problems with that, most notably that someone should have sent a memo to Luke and to Barnabas and Saul and the teachers of the church that this was something that they no longer needed to engage in. But instead, the New Testament at large, the history of the church and our own confessional standards have all always respected, venerated fasting as an act of devotion. Right? And what better practice today in our age of gluttony, our age of overindulgence, to take the time and say, yeah, I'm going to deprive myself, I'm going to deprive my appetites in order to remind myself that more than bread and water, I need the risen Christ. More than bread and water, I need the Spirit. And so fasting becomes an act of devotion through which the early church seeks to hear uh, from, the, from the Lord, seeks to, uh, to understand the Spirit's intention. And it's through this worship and fasting that the Spirit arrives in a very powerful way, actually speaking, calling Barnabas and Paul to their appointed task. And so as we see the church desiring to experience the Spirit in this way and committing themselves to it, we, I don't get the impression that this group of Christians was a people who, who found it hard to schedule worship around all their other commitments, nor did they find it hard to actually devote themselves to the Lord in fasting. And so we, we read this and we're confronted and we say, well, do we want to hear from the Spirit? I think most people would say yes. In fact, some of you I hear repeatedly lament that you don't feel like you hear from the Spirit enough. You hear his leading or his call. In which case I would say, well, then presumably we're doing lots of worshiping and lots of fasting because that's how the Spirit showed up for the early church in Antioch. At which point we might be a little bit convicted. Right? At no point in the history of the American church has worship been a more negotiated, right, tangential I'll choose it when I want to, aspect of the church. And of course, how many people today are regularly fasting, seeking the voice of God in that discipline of grace? Not many, which makes us ask the question, well, do we really want to hear from the Spirit? If I really wanted to hear from the Spirit, wouldn't I do what the early church was doing when the Spirit showed up? 
So I feel a little bit convicted. Well, maybe I don't want to hear from the Spirit as much as I think I want to hear from the Spirit. Why, why would that be? Why might you not really? You know, if we say, do you want to hear from the Spirit? You say, oh, sure. And then we start to think about it. Maybe that's not such an attractive idea as we might initially think it is. I don't think it's simply because we're lazy, although that's certainly part of it, right? That we don't want to endeavor and be disciplined in these, uh, these areas. But I think there's also the reality that we, we understand at a deep level that it might not necessarily be the most pleasurable thing to be called by the Spirit. Imagine for a moment that you are a great cook. You're an outstanding cook. You're the best, you are widely considered the best cook in Dallas. You are such a good cook that you have received an award to go and to meet with the best chef in the world, whoever that is. I don't know who it would be. Maybe you do, Chef Boyardee. Whoever that person is, right? The greatest cook in the world. Whoever Ramen, Ramen Pride was, probably that person. So, you think you're excited, you're honored, you, you are eager to meet with this person, you think this is, this is amazing, the greatest chef in the world, I have so many questions, I have so many, um, I can learn so much from meeting with this individual. But then as you think more about the meeting, you start to get a bit more nervous. You think, well, you know, what if, what if the conversation turns toward me? What if he wants to know about my cooking? Well, goodness, what, what if he doesn't like or he shouldn't like my recipes. What if then this greatest cook suggests that um, all my techniques are wrong and that I should really go back to square one? What if this is a humiliating encounter? What if my entire identity as a cook is taken away from me and I realize that there's, if I truly want to be a good cook, there's a great deal of work ahead? This doesn't sound like an exciting meeting at all. So, you know what, I, I can't get out of the meeting it's a huge honor. It would be very obvious to skip it. So I'm going to go to the meeting, but I'm going to make sure the conversation and focus stays on the great chef. And then I won't have to experience any of these things that I really don't want to experience. And perhaps in some ways, we've just described the great majority of Bible study. Right? That we would go to the Word and learn all kinds of things about God. But let's not let the conversation turn so much back on ourselves. I like my identity. I think I'm doing okay if the word, if God's voice has something, the spirit has something to, different to say about that. Well, I really want to go down that road. And if the spirit has something to say where, well, maybe I should back way up and start over in a number of regards that my old self might be put to death. And oh yeah, isn't that what Jesus says to Nicodemus that we must be born again? Well, that doesn't sound pleasant at all. If I'm going to have this meeting, if I'm going to be called by the Spirit, let's keep it at arm's length, let's have a certain distance, and let's keep the focus on God and not so much on me. And so we protect ourselves in a certain way from meeting, meeting the Spirit of God, being called by Him, is not a safe calling in the ways that we would think of it being safe. It's not a calling that fulfills our desires. It's not a calling that makes our dreams come true. And so in the fear of that frustration, in the fear of that exposure, we might like to avoid that call altogether. So suddenly, why would I really press into worship and fasting if worshiping and fasting brings the call of the Spirit? And I don't really want the call of the Spirit, then I'm just going to put worship and fasting on the back burner. And the less I invest in it, maybe the less chance that the Spirit actually shows up. 
And that's going on in all of our hearts to some extent, to a greater or lesser degree. We see here the church intent, willing to give up a great deal to hear how the Spirit will direct the expansion of God's kingdom because they know that it's the greatest thing in the history of the world. And they're filled with faith, probably in a way that we struggle to understand what it means to be filled with faith. And they seek the call of the Spirit. And when they receive that call, right, they also are willing to heed it. This brings us to the second aspect of our passage, which is the sending of the Spirit. In verse 4, uh, and leading up there, we see what do the, the teachers and prophets continue to pray. They continue to fast after the Spirit is spoken. Then they lay hands on Barnabas and Saul, commissioning them, sending them out on their behalf, uh, being, uh, being sent in the Spirit. And when we talk about the sending of the Spirit, again, we're not fools in the sense that we know that the Spirit may send us where we don't want to go. And if the Spirit might send me where I don't want to go, then maybe it, if I avoid the call, I get to avoid the sending as well. We prefer to stay uh, in places that are comfortable, places that are non-threatening. But be, to be called by the Spirit is unequivocally to be called to mission. Now, by that, I don't mean you need to be a missionary, in the, at least in the sense that you would um, you raise all support, move to a different place of the world, live in a hut, and share the gospel with people who have never heard before. But there is no participation in the Spirit after the resurrection of Jesus that does not involve your call to participate in mission in the expansion of God's kingdom. And that might be a, a call to be sent to your neighbor. That might be a call to be sent to work on behalf of uh, those who require justice, right? Those in the, in the foster care system or to work on behalf of widows or to work on, in, in, in teaching one of the classes here and educating, right? To, in some way, Leveraging your gifts and resources to say, I invest in the church and the kingdom being stronger and expanding in this capacity. Right? You're going to be sent to something. Right? And if you're not, you can't hear any sending, right? then are you really hearing the call of the Spirit? Right? There is not one without the other in the book of Acts and throughout the rest of, of the New Testament. And when we, we sense that sending, and then we start to say, well, we have all kinds of reactions. Right? If it's something small, like, Sending to be, be a teacher or something in that capacity, we, we might grumble as if our spouse is sending us to the grocery store at a late hour. I don't really want to do that. Or there might be a big sending. God, Spirit might be sending some of you to go to a distant place as some of our missionaries that we support do and to labor for the kingdom in that capacity. And then that's it. You might be terrified. That might be a huge calling and you want no part of it and you... You're getting on the first ship in the other direction just like Jonah did. You would prefer to be found somewhere else or not be found by the Spirit at all. And yet, resisting the sending of the Spirit is only something that will lead to frustration. For years, I resisted uh, going to seminary, even though the call and the sending became increasingly apparent over time. I didn't, it, there were just things that held me back in terms of I didn't want to really be responsible for people. And that little bit about being judged more severely for your teaching... I didn't like that either. And so there were, I just thought, and I don't, man, all the people, lots of, I don't, I have a limited capacity for people and lots of people. And so <laughs> seminary, I did thought, I don't know if this is a good idea, but it was almost like you couldn't avoid, right? The, the spirit was moving in a certain direction. 
Right? And I could have gone kicking and screaming, but maybe like Jonah, I would have ended up there anyway. And yet, there, at the same time, right, the Spirit doesn't send us where we want to go or where it's easy, because then it would be easy to remain living in the old man. But when he sends us to a place that's hard and a place that requires something of us, the old man gets put to death, we're made new, we learn more to depend on him, and we grow right, in our faith and in our righteousness. We become more sanctified, which is the point of the calling in the first place. And so there's joy, both in the growth in the individual and in the participation of uh, seeing the kingdom expand. And be warned, if you sense the sending of the Spirit and seek to resist that outright, you just don't want to go down that road, that will result in a very lukewarm faith that will not be good for you. You get this. I mean, just imagine a university approaches one of our high schoolers, a high schooler who's, who's marked him or herself out and has done well, and the university comes and says, we are really impressed. We are choosing you. We're giving you the tuition that you need, uh, the financial support that you need, and we want you to play this special role on our campus, and we're going to fast-track you for the degree program that you want. And the student says, you know, that's really, I'm very, very honored, but I'm so comfortable on my parents' couch, and I really don't know that I can separate myself from uh, the whatever the latest gaming device is and move on in that direction, I'm good. Now what's the university going to say? Oh no, we really want you. Let us persuade you. Right? They're going to say, oh, okay. Well, we've got a number two that's really close and we're happy to go in that direction as well given what you've said to us. And there's something akin to that in terms of uh, don't mock the sending of the Spirit. Don't think that you can, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'll tell you, Spirit, when I'm ready. By the time you're ready, the Spirit may well have moved on in another direction, and you will have missed uh, something great and something important. Now, when we consider the sending of the Spirit, this leads us to our last aspect of the passage, which is the equipping of the Spirit. This notion, we might be afraid that the Spirit would send us out. We find ourselves, you know, kind of on, on the face of a mountain, and the Spirit didn't give us enough of the things that you hammer into the rock, and we're stuck, right? Will the Spirit really carry through with meeting our needs in the capacity of our call and our sending? We see the Spirit absolutely doing that on behalf of Paul. Uh, notice, you know, Barnabas and Saul are sent out. They begin their missionary journey. They end up going to the island of Cyprus, and John there is John Mark, uh, who we... And, man, I'm just to be straight with you, the, really the New Testament in a number of places could have used an editor. One of those places is that uh, John Mark is sometimes called John, sometimes called Mark, and sometimes called John Mark. And you have to work sometimes at context and kind of make an educated guess. It's one of those places. But it is John Mark. They're on the island of Cyprus. They're going about evangelizing the island and preaching the gospel. And they run face-to-face with a Jewish magician. Uh, who is called a false prophet. He goes by two names. One name is a Hebrew, which is Bar-Jesus. It's kind of a hybrid, actually, Hebrew-Aramaic name. just means son of Jesus. It's no reference to Jesus, son of God. Jesus is Aramaic for Joshua, right, in the Hebrew. And it's an incredibly common name in the first century. He's just son of Jesus. He also goes by a a, a Greek name, Elimus, that probably means wisdom. But as a magician, what, what is he doing? Right? He's someone who reads the stars. 
He casts spells and incantations to influence people. He throws the bones and reads the bones to understand and discern what's going on in the future. And he's on retainer for a Roman official, Sergius Paulus. Right? If you were doing pretty well in the ancient world, in government or in business, you would have on retainer someone who was thought to have the power to influence people and to tell you the future so that you could exercise greater control over your business interests. So Sergius employs uh, Bar Jesus to do these things for him. Let me know what you think is going to happen in the future. I want you to influence this person to say yes to this business deal, so on and so forth. That's how he functions. Now, when Barnabas and Paul come on the scene, and this is where uh, Saul starts to be called Paul consistently because he's turning his face toward the Gentiles. Right? So Barnabas and Paul come on the scene, and as they're on uh, the scene, they threaten Bar-Jesus and his livelihood. Because Serge, it says, tells us that Sergius is interested in the faith, right? and if he converts to Christianity, Elimus or Bar-Jesus knows that he's no longer going to employ his services. And so this becomes a contested endeavor over the soul of Sergius. You put yourself in the shoes of Barnabas and, and Paul for a moment. Right? Nowhere in the Old Testament leading up to this time did you really get the notion that those who decide that Jesus is Messiah are going to be sent out in a way to be missionaries. And suddenly this becomes the reality for the church. And they've left everything that they have behind and are going to places where they have no friends and know no people to tell a story that is outlandish and no one's ever heard before. That's a pretty significant challenge to anybody. Here they are and suddenly they come face to face with somebody who's good enough as a magician right, to be employed by a Roman official and they go head to head. You realize that to be called and sent is to enter into conflict because the sons of the women will always do battle with the sons of the serpent in this world until Jesus comes back. And you will have conflict and tension and adversarial relationships between uh, you who seek to honor Christ and follow the Spirit and those who are very content to follow the spirits of this world and are interested in honoring Christ. And it's at that point that we perhaps most desire the equipping of the Spirit. Will the Spirit see us through? And behind that is the question, will the Spirit vindicate us? Right? Or am I going to be played the fool for aligning myself with the story and faith? Or at the end of the day, will I be proven sensible for having done so? And Acts 13 is, 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 is a kind of pledge, a kind of down payment, that yes, you will be proved sensible. You will be vindicated just as Paul is vindicated. In verse 10, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, he says to Elimus, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And Elimus is suddenly struck with blindness, very similar to Saul being struck with blindness on the road to Damascus. His physical blindness represents his spiritual blindness. You cannot see. You are leading Sergius in the paths of darkness. You will now be in physical darkness. And as a result, Sergius is freed from Bar Jesus' influence and has the opportunity to hear the word of the Lord. And in this small story, Paul is vindicated, right? Proven true. And the story then can go forward and continue to be proven true. Notice how it ends there in verse 12. The Sergius comes to believe, 
And he's astonished. But notice what he's astonished at. He's not astonished at the blindness that comes upon Elimus. He's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He's been confronted with these two individuals, three if you include John Mark, right, who have heeded the call of the Spirit, the sending of the Spirit, and have trusted in the equipping of the Spirit so that they could tell him the story of Jesus. And at that, he's astonished because they're Spirit-filled individuals participating in the expansion of God's kingdom. And that's the invitation to us this morning. Do you truly want to experience the Spirit? Well, we begin with the call. We see the elder, or the teachers and prophets of the church fasting and worshiping in order to experience the call of the Spirit. Do you want to receive the call of the Spirit? Are you willing to worship and fast in an intentional way that you might hear it? And would you be sent by the Spirit? Well, to desire to be sent by the Spirit is also the willingness to go. Where might the Spirit be sending you? Somewhere small and simple here. Right? To, to hear the call then is to pray for the sending. Right? And to receive the sending is then to go. And then to go is to receive the equipping. And each step of faith is then met with the gift of faith right? that builds up the individual in the church for the tasks that, it's called itself, that it has been called to. And so we see that faith begets faith. And whether it's the call or the sending or the equipping, wherever you find yourself, will you step out in faith this week? that God might meet you with faith in the Spirit. Let's pray. God, our Father, the expansion of the church, the way in which your mission goes forward from Jesus, continues to surprise us, uh, as it certainly did those who were gathered in the first century. We recognize that now your church is a people of the Spirit, and so we ask humbly that you would continue to call us by your Spirit. And that we'd heed that call and be, uh, be willing to be set apart. Would you encourage us in our worship and our fasting and the other disciplines of grace that would demonstrate our desire to hear you? And as you indicate which direction you would send us, would you help us to be faithful to go in that direction and not to cling to all the things that enamor us in this world nor the pleasures that we desire, but instead to be brave. And to realize that if you are not withholding all the riches of eternity from us, then to cling to the riches of this earth is such a foolish decision. And as we're sent out, would you help us to trust that we will be equipped? And as we act in faith, would you meet us in faith? Spirit, we ask that you would encourage us. And indeed, in this entire task, that you would nourish us at this table this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.